Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People. The Constitution matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL here on this fine Friday morning. My wonderful two collaborators with me in the studio this morning, Philadelphia Constitutional Instructor and Mike Jeremito, who we call our warrior in the courtroom. And by the way, Mike has a great show just before ours on Friday morning, 7 a.m., uh, the, uh, the Law Matters. Mike G. in the morning, The Law Matters. So join him at 7. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the Senior Instructor at Institute on the Constitution, where we teach the American view of law and government, which is simply put in the Declaration of Independence, there is a Creator God, our rights come from Him, Him alone, and thirdly, the only point, the only purpose, the only reason to have human civil government is to protect and defend your God-given rights. Well, this morning, we have an interesting case to be looking at in our, in our Supreme Court cases, the decent dozen, that is, the cases that are pretty good when it comes to the Supreme Court. Uh, we've already studied the dirty dozen before this series, but uh, in this case, it's an interesting, uh, you know, almost false imprisonment that's taken place. It's the case O'Connor v. Donaldson back in 1975, and uh, this really has to do with very important God-given right. That's the God-given right to liberty. And so, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts this morning on uh, O'Connor v. Donaldson? Well, Wikipedia describes this case. The origins of Donaldson's institutionalization began in 1943 at age 34 when he suffered a traumatic episode. He was hospitalized and received treatment before resuming life with his family. In 1956, Donaldson traveled to Florida to visit his elderly parents. While there, Donaldson reported that he believed one of his neighbors in Philadelphia might be poisoning his food. His father, worried that his son suffered from paranoid delusions, petitioned the court for a sanity hearing. Donaldson was evaluated, diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and civilly committed to the Florida State Mental Health System. At his commitment trial, Donaldson did not have legal counsel present to represent his case. Once he entered the Florida hospital, Donaldson was placed with dangerous criminals, even though he had never been proved to be dangerous to himself or others. His ward was understaffed with only one doctor who happened to be an obstetrician. For over a thousand male patients, there were no psychiatrists or counselors, and the only nurse on site worked in the infirmary. He spent 15 years as a patient. He did not receive any treatment, actively refusing it, and attempting to secure his release. Throughout his stay, he denied he was ever mentally ill and refused to be put into a halfway house. The American Psychological Association defines mental disorder in this way. Any condition characterized by cognitive and emotional disturbances, abnormal behaviors, impaired functioning, or any combination of these. Such disorders cannot be accounted for solely by environmental circumstances and may involve physiological, genetic, chemical, social, and other factors. Specific classifications of mental disorders are elaborated in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM-4-TR and DSM-5, and the World Health Organization's International Classification of Diseases, also called mental illness. Detecting, accurately diagnosing, and effectively treating mental disorders must be one of the greatest challenges in healthcare. By comparison, diagnosing cardiovascular disease must be relatively straightforward. 
With cardiovascular disease, the patient presents with generally recognized symptoms. An electrocardiogram supports the interim diagnosis as do further image studies. Physicians intervene, perhaps implanting a stent or more aggressively by doing heart bypass surgery. The patient is discharged after a lifetime uh, under a lifetime medication regime and cautioned to exercise and restrict diet. The patient recovers over time while being monitored by physicians. Now let's parse the American Psychological Association definition to see the difficulties faced by healthcare providers when faced with the challenge of identifying the presence of a mental disorder. The definition begin, begins, any condition characterized by cognitive and emotional disturbances, abnormal behaviors, impaired functioning, or any combination of these. So what is a cognitive disturbance. The National Cancer Institute offers this definition of cognitive impairment. Problems with a person's ability to think, learn, remember, use judgment, and make decisions. Signs of cognitive impairment include memory loss and trouble concentrating, completing tasks, understanding, remembering, following instructions, and solving problems. Other common, si uh, common signs may include changes in mood or behavior, loss of motivation, and being unaware of surroundings. Cognitive impairment may be mild or severe. There are many causes of cognitive impairment, including cancer and some cancer treatments. If we are honest, most of us will admit to being cognitively impaired at some time in our lives. The source of this definition is interesting, the National Cancer Institute, which we associate with physical medicine. It is indicating that cognitive impairment can have physical causes. The American Psychological Association continues, such disorders cannot be accounted for solely by environmental circumstances and may involve physiological, genetic, chemical, social, and other factors. That seems reasonable and is consistent with the National Cancer Institute definition of cognitive impairment. But compare that with the specificity of the definition of cardiovascular disease from the American Heart Association. Heart and blood vessel disease includes numerous problems, many of which are related to a process called atherosclerosis. Atherosclerosis is a condition that develops when a substance called plaque builds up in the walls of the arteries. This buildup narrows the arteries, making it harder for blood to flow through. If a blood clot forms, it can block the blood flow. This can cause a heart attack or stroke. Atherosclerosis is identified as the single specific cause of cardiovascular disease, whereas four general areas, physiological, genetic, chemical, social areas, are not enough to contain all the possibilities of the cause of mental disorder. The American Psychological Association acknowledges that the cause of cognitive impairment may lie outside of the four general areas it has identified. In effect, we can ignore this second sentence in the definition because it doesn't even rule out any possibilities. Continuing with the American Psychological Association definition, specific classifications of mental disorders are elaborated in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders and the World Health Organization's International Classification of Diseases. While there really is no practical definition of mental disorder at the general level, the American Psychological Association has come up with a very long list of subcategories of mental disorder. That should lead us to understand the limitations of defining mental health. Note that in 1943, at age 34, 
when he suffered a traumatic episode, he was hospitalized, hospitalized and received treatment before resuming life with his family. The description of his case neither rules out a physical cause, nor does it confirm one. Without reading Donaldson's book written about the events leading up to the Supreme Court opinion, it is difficult to get a sense for his family life in Philadelphia prior to his living leaving to live with his elderly parents in Florida. This is an excerpt from the Literary Hub Web site about the case. Thirteen years before the hospitalization at issue in the case, the plaintiff, Kenneth Donaldson, voluntarily checked himself into a psychiatric facility, an experience he describes in his book, Insanity Inside Out, the personal story behind the landmark Supreme Court decision of 1976. During the first hospitalization, Donaldson was by his account a troublesome patient. He resented being forced to work as a dishwasher and scavenger his, uh, and scavenge his dinner from the discards on the staff plates. His grumblings about this and other injustices may well have been part of the motivation for referring him to electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, at the time an agonizing treatment that ward attendants and clinicians sometimes used as a punishment. Donaldson was strapped down and tormented with ECT twice a week. After 23 treatments, he was finally released. Although the Mayo Clinic has found ECT to be safe as administered today in lighter doses of electricity, Donaldson was not likely to have been exposed to what Mayo Clinic calls modern treatment. UK's National Institute for Health and uh, Care Excellence, otherwise known as NICE, has stated the NICE guidelines do not recommend ECT for ongoing management of schizophrenia. They also don't recommend it as a routine treatment for mild or moderate depression. So was all of this due process or was Donaldson simply processed? There are multiple sources of information about Donaldson exclusive of the case summaries. Perhaps the most detailed is Kenneth Donaldson's book, published in 1976, the year after he was released from Florida State Mental Hospital in Chattahoochee, Florida. Of course, the book presents Donaldson's side of the story, but there's nothing in the case summaries to refute his claims, and a good deal to substantiate them. Apparently, he was processed by the Florida system of justice as follows. First, while at his elderly parents' residence in Florida, he was arrested but denied access to legal counsel, a violation of the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. He did not know the nature of the charge and who had initiated the charge. Three and a half years later, he would learn it was his father. He was incarcerated for a number of days before he was visited by a county judge who had a brief conversation with him through the bars of a jail cell. The judge claimed that uh, that was his hearing, but Donaldson insisted upon a hearing by medical professionals and representation by counsel. Second, at the hearing, he was never really represented by counsel, and he was found to be a paranoid schizophrenic. Third, once incarcerated in the state hospital, he requested a writ of habeas corpus so he might have an opportunity to plead his case for release. There was no response to his request. Later, Donaldson would mention that he had not been released even when two different sources promised to take responsibility for his care. Dr. J.B. O'Connor, the hospital superintendent during most of this period, refused the release. O'Connor stated that Donaldson would have been unable to make a successful adjustment outside the institution, although at the eventual trial, 
O'Connor could not recall the basis for that conclusion. It was a few months after O'Connor's retirement that Donaldson finally gained his release. And finally, immediately upon his release, Donaldson found a responsible job as a hotel clerk. He had no problem keeping his job or living on his own. Let's take a look at the opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States. Justice Potter Stewart wrote the unanimous, uh, unanimous opinion of the Supreme Court, which included these comments. Donaldson's frequent request for release had been supported by responsible persons willing to provide him any care he might need on release. In 1963, for example, a representative of Helping Hands Incorporated, a halfway house for mental patients, wrote O'Connor asking him to release Donaldson to its care. The request was accompanied by a supporting letter from the Minneapolis Clinic of Psychiatry and Neurology, which a co-defendant conceded was a good clinic. O'Connor rejected the offer replying that Donaldson could be released only to his parents. That rule was apparently of O'Connor's own making. At the time, Donaldson was 55 years old, and as O'Connor knew, Donaldson's parents were too elderly and infirm to take responsibility for him. Moreover, in his continuing correspondence with Donaldson's parents, O'Connor never informed them of the helping hands offer. In addition, on four separate occasions between 1964 and 1968, John Lemke, a college classmate of Donaldson's and a longtime family friend, asked O'Connor to release Donaldson to his care. On each occasion, O'Connor refused. The record shows that Lemke was a serious and responsible person who was willing and able to assume responsibility for Donald's welfare. The evidence showed that Donaldson's confinement was a simple regime of enforced custodial care, not a program designed to alleviate or cure his supposed illness. The opinion continued, a finding of mental illness alone cannot justify a state's locking a person up against his will and keeping him indefinitely in simple custodial confinement. Assuming that that term can be given a reasonably precise content and that the mentally ill can be identified with reasonable accuracy, there is still no constitutional basis for confining such persons involuntarily if they are dangerous to no one and can live safely in freedom. This is the essential point made in Justice Potter Stewart's opinion. A state cannot constitutionally confine a non-dangerous individual who is capable of surviving safely in freedom by himself or with the help of a willing and responsible family member or friends. Since the jury found upon ample evidence that O'Connor, as an agent of the state, knowingly did so confine Donaldson, it properly concluded that O'Connor violated Donaldson's constitutional right to freedom. So how does all of this apply uh, with constitutional law? It appears there are two procedural bases upon which this action might have been pursued. The first, the Fifth Amendment requirement that Donaldson should have had assistance of counsel upon his arrest, and the second, the Article uh, Article 1, Section 9 requirement that the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended. Too often in other cases, the 14th Amendment's due process clause, clause has been invoked to reassure that other provisions of the Constitution should apply. This is particularly true in First Amendment cases in which the first 14th Amendment's due process requirement has been incorporated to get around the literal limitation of the First Amendment to the actions of Congress. This is not the case in O'Connor versus Donaldson. Donaldson had been processed in the worst sense of that word 
by a member of the bureaucracy of the state of Florida. He had, in effect, been incarcerated for life without committing a crime. He had been exposed to the criminally insane as a part of what was euphemistically called custodial care. Inasmuch as Donaldson was systematically denied his rights as a citizen, the 14th Amendment, Section 1's language, provides a firm foundation for the pursuit of justice. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. No, amen. And I appreciate that the 14th Amendment here was not the only reason why uh, his liberty had to be restored. And what, what a tragedy to be uh, incarcerated for that much of his life a- as an adult. Uh, and, you know, this is a good Supreme Court case because they came to the proper conclusion and it appears that they came through the proper means. That is, they saw the Fifth Amendment being violated here. And uh, obviously, Rid habeas corpus was also violated, Article 1, Section 9. And uh, the case of uh, O'Connor, you have to wonder, wait a minute, what was motivating O'Connor to keep Donaldson incarcerated like this for so many years and, and then refusing when there was opportunity after opportunity where people volunteered and said, we will take care of him. We will see to it that, that he's not going to be a burden to society. And I don't know in that particular case what the reason was, but I do have a suspicion due to another uh, a, a personal experience I had with uh, a member of our congregation, but I'll, I'll talk about that in, in a moment. What is interesting here to me is that the Supreme Court ruled correctly, especially in an issue which is extremely difficult, as you've pointed out, Phil, to navigate and determine, is someone actually mentally ill? And by what definition are you going to determine that? In other words, what we've stepped into, as you rightly pointed, is into a, uh, I guess people like to call it a soft science, the social sciences, in contrast with true medical science, you could determine if somebody has, uh, you know, their arteries are being built up with plaque and they're going to have a heart attack or they've had, a, you can determine that medically. There's hard science behind that. But what happens when uh, you're in the realm of whether you call it soft science or social science? And that's a huge problem in our legal system, uh, a problem that actually uh, before this particular event uh, in the Brandeis brief, that I want to talk about for just a moment. Before this, the legal history of our country is they relied upon uh, legal arguments when they presented a case in court. And the Brandeis brief was uh, uh, pioneered by Louis Brandeis. Uh, he inter- introduced this idea in a case in 1908, and he gathered a compilation of scientific information and social science uh, more than the legal citations. Uh, the legal citations in his case, in his Brandeis brief, were very brief, or very short, and page after page after page of, of all kinds of uh, uh, illustrations from supposedly uh, scientific research and, and testimony of medics and social scientists, and workers. And the case, by the way, uh, the Brandeis case was uh, regarding the uh, general welfare of women and how many hours they could work. And this was in the state of Oregon. And uh, they added all kinds of research to this brief to persuade the court in the favor of saying, no, no, we need to limit 
the number of hours women are working. And therefore, uh, this was a case that was uh, forcing the state of Oregon to abide by a standard that was being established essentially by the Supreme Court. Well, that was kind of the breaking point because after Brandeis uh, uh, authored his brief, other people began to follow that pattern of using the social sciences and all kinds of citation of social sciences more than even legal citation. And the interesting thing about the Brandeis brief, there's many, many shortcomings because later it was shown that some of the scientific evidence that was detailed in that Brandeis brief was challenged and even refuted. <laughs> so here you go when you when you dive into the realm of soft science like you're talking about, Phil, that um, how can we determine what mental illness, how do you measure it? You know, how do you determine if uh, somebody really needs to be, uh, you know, in this case, incarcerated uh, for their own good, supposedly? And the re the reality is that once you step into these social sciences, wow, there is nothing hard. There is nothing fast. There is nothing solid like uh, in good medicine or in, in other hard sciences where you've got actual facts. You got a whole lot of opinion. And particularly when you deal with the whole era the whole area of uh, uh, psychology and uh, psychoanalysis and so forth you could find all kinds of different theories and when you study those theories you find that they contradict one another you know you know Freud says this and Carl Jung says that and they these two theories can't both be true and so when you're dealing with a realm of social science you have something that is you know feet firmly planted in midair. Uh, and so it's a, I, I see it as a dangerous direction that our legal system has gone since the Brandeis brief of, of 1908, uh, where the social sciences have been brought into the courtroom as solid evidence, when in many cases it's very, very flaky sort of things that are being argued. Uh, and even the Brandeis brief itself, later many of the supposed facts that they were presenting, the supposed social science and so forth was you know, refuted and it was shown that that was not uh, true uh, at all. So the tragedy here for uh, for Donaldson was uh, simply because his father suspected that he might be having a problem. The father then had him committed, and then the whole system participated in keeping him incarcerated for for the rest of his most of his adult life, from age uh, 34 on to uh, from 1943 to 1956. It's it's a a tragedy in the heart that in, in this man's life that he spent 15 years incarcerated, 15 years deprived of his liberty. Uh, I know personally of a, a member of our congregation who had a similar thing happen to him. So even though this O'Connor v. Donaldson case has sort of established a standard, it still happens. And in this case, it's very parallel. He had a bad relationship with his father. They didn't get along from when he was younger and now he was an adult and so on. And uh, the father essentially charge that, uh, you know, his son needed to be committed to a mental institution. And uh, my friend appeared in court one day to defend himself, basically. Uh, he didn't have an attorney defending him, and maybe that was his mistake. I'm not sure. But anyway, he left that courtroom basically a prisoner. No warning. You know, actually, you know, he called me. He got a phone call once he was uh, incarcerated and told me his situation and said uh, he needed all kinds of help. After all, he had driven his vehicle to the court and parked it in the court parking lot. And now that vehicle was sitting in the court parking lot, but he had the keys and could I come and help him? Could I get the keys? And you no, know, I spent an enormous amount of hours just trying to get the keys to his vehicle so we could get his vehicle and, and therefore his vehicle wouldn't be towed away 
uh, for not paying uh, the parking uh, uh, bill. And oh, just the problems just exploded from there because now his payments and his bank account, everything, he lost his job. And of course, the months, he spent a couple of months before he was able to uh, be released, but it was all a false charge. There was no evidence that he had any mental problem or mental illness, but he was incarcerated against his will simply by uh, his father. And he, he did some research into this, that he discovered that in this case, in, uh, in how things are structured in our state of Maryland, there are judges who actually profit from putting people into mental institutions, that they ha these mental institutions are for-profit uh, businesses, and some of these judges are invested in those businesses, which they in turn are sending people to them. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. So the, the motivation to put people away is very strong because the judge is going to make money off of incarcerating people against their will, depriving them of liberty for profit of the judges. And there's also various, uh, you know, each, each person when they're uh, incarcerated in this way, then the state kicks in a certain percentage and all the money, you know, just that follow the money mantra uh, was all too true. And, and he finally just tried to make himself as obnoxious as he could to the staff there, indicating he was not mentally insane, that he uh, was going to make it difficult for them. And he, according to him, again, not sure if this was accurate, that uh, they wanted him, they wanted him gone. He was just too much of a problem, even though there was a profit motive involved. And uh, he was not like the other uh, inmates that were just willing to go along with the system and take whatever drugs they gave him and you know, go through whatever supposed therapy. He resisted the whole thing. But to me, it was a tragedy, a, a tragedy uh, of uh, the injustice being done to a sound person who is not at all mentally ill, who is functioning in society, that someone can accuse them of having a mental problem and they be put away just as uh, Donaldson was here for 15 years. Uh, my friend, fortunately, and, and I was able to help him and, and bring in a, an attorney and, and you know just try to do everything we could. So I think all of that did help him uh, get out within a couple of months. But just a sense of uh, you as a citizen of this land are not necessarily secure in your liberty due to, and this is my my understanding of this case due to this case not being accepted in other words people believing that the uh, mental health industry can evaluate someone uh in a, in a cursory manner and determine yep they need to be institutionalized we can lock them away we could deprive them of their liberty we could deprive them of uh, justice in the court and uh, that's just fine and I believe it goes on because of, like I said, the money trail that's involved in this. Uh, this is a, a gross injustice and quite obviously a violation of our United States Constitution as well as a violation of the state constitutions, which are designed to secure our God-given right. One of which is our God-given right to liberty. No one has uh, a power to enslave us. And the whole idea of enslaving people in our country is you know, forbidden by most people hate the idea of slavery, hate the idea of chattel slavery, but they don't know that we have new and very advanced forms of slavery going on in our system today. And the institutionalization of those who really do not belong in a mental institution is an example of that. Now, I don't know how, uh, how prevalent that is, and that's uh, my unknown factor here, but I know in the case of uh, my one friend, it was very clear 
there was a vendetta being done against him by his father with a very difficult relationship between the two of them. And that vendetta was being participated in appears to be for profit uh, by the legal system here in, in the state of Maryland. But this case, O'Connor v. Donaldson, stands as a, a shining example of the Supreme Court getting it right, saying, no, if there's no clear danger this person presents to themselves or to others, uh, declaring they have a mental disorder, which means they must be locked away, is the wrong thing to do and a violation of our Constitution. Well, Mike, what are your thoughts on, on this case, O'Connor v. Donaldson? I got quite a few, Pastor Whitney. Thank you so much. You know, this case really hits close to home for me because I frequently represent people, including this week, on cases where people have been subjected to involuntary mental health treatment and they want to restore their firearms rights. I couldn't tell you how many of these cases I have tried, and frankly, lawyers all over Pennsylvania send me these cases because they're so complicated. I have had numerous, several-hour-long, knock-down, drag-out, dogfight hearings on these matters, and there's no better feeling when the court rules in our favor and a man or woman's Second Amendment rights are ultimately restored. You know, we often cite a case called Addington versus Texas, where the court actually cited Donaldson. And in that case, the argument was about what the standard of proof should be in a civil commitment hearing. The court ultimately held, quote, we've concluded that the reasonable doubt standard is inappropriate in civil commitment proceedings because given the uncertainties of psychiatric diagnosis, it may impose a burden the state cannot meet and thereby, thereby erect an unreasonable barrier to needed medical treatment. Similarly, we conclude that Use of the term unequivocal is not constitutionally required, although the states are free to use that standard. To meet due process demands, the standard has to inform the fact finder that proof must be greater than the preponderance of the evidence standard applicable to other categories of civil cases. Now, this is a good news, bad news case, because sure, it's great that it must go beyond the preponderance of the evidence, which just means more likely than not, think 50.000001%, and that's preponderance of the evidence. But the bad news is that someone can, in fact, be confined short of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, when it comes to due process, Pennsylvania specifically has the Mental Health Procedures Act. And the government and hospitals they contract with are supposed to follow the Mental Health Procedures Act to the letter, because ultimately these measures are in place to protect the rights of the patient. Now, some of the different things that are required under the Mental Health Procedures Act are things that are procedural in nature, such as the patient must be evaluated within two hours of being brought into the hospital. There's got to be a warrant that's issued by the county administrator in many cases. And then you've got your standard as to who is a proper subject for what they call a 302. And the proper subject is someone who's severely mentally disabled as a result of mental illness. And then ultimately, you have many people who are not proper subjects being brought in. You have a standard that must be met as far as whether somebody is a danger to themselves or others, and how have they shown a clear and present danger. And the courts have said that strict compliance is required of the Mental Health Procedures Act because anything less violates the patient's rights. And the Pennsylvania State Police, you better believe it, they fight these cases tooth and nail when we allege that the Mental Health Procedures Act was not strictly complied with. Now, you have to understand that the way a 302 works in Pennsylvania is that the hospital can keep you for up to 120 hours based on an accusation and a doctor's signature. 
They can keep you for up to 120 hours without any court proceeding whatsoever. If they want to keep you for longer than 120 20 hours, then within the first 72 hours, they have to petition for what's called a 303. And then after that, you'll have a 303 hearing. And it's not in court the way you'd imagine with a, a judge and a robe or anything like that. Usually, these take place in a conference room and you've got the hearing officer who everybody calls the judge, a guy in a suit at the head of the table. And at least you have the opportunity to cross-examine and things of that nature. You have the ability to have your attorney there. You know, we have cases all the time where people are illegally subjected to involuntary mental health treatment under Section 302. And I'm very careful not to call a 302 a commitment, although many people do, because if you look in Section 302, guess what word is not there? The word commitment. And in keeping these people, a lot of times you have the hospitals and the government breaking just about every rule in the book. And in many of these cases, the court ultimately finds that there was insufficient evidence to force this person into treatment in the first place. And in those cases, the court orders all of the records to be expunged. Now, practically speaking, there's an issue here. When these cases come before a judge, you know the judge has in the back of their mind, at least many of them, that if they expunge the records and effectively restore the person's right to possess firearms, and that person later goes on to do something horrible, that judge's name is going to be on the front page of the newspaper. And they would obviously also feel very bad about it. But you know, I fight for people in these situations, but it's got to be really scary to be in that position. And people listening to me right now might say, that will never happen to me. Well, then you have something in common with every person I've ever represented, because every single one of them thought it would never happen to them. I've really never had somebody sit across from me and say, well, Mike, you know, I always knew this was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. That doesn't happen. They thought it would never happen to them as well. And you have to understand that all it takes is an accusation and a doctor's signature. The doctor doesn't sit there and figure out whether the accusations are actually true. If you think that's the case, you've got to be kidding me. What do you think MD stands for? Moonlight Detective? Y you might say, well, Mike, I'm different because I'm not crazy. But if you listen to people in the mainstream media today, or if you listen to the Hollywood elites, they have some ideas about who's crazy, about who's mentally ill, or who ought to be committed. And these ideas are pretty frightening. There are people out there who think you're just crazy, or you're deranged if you own guns. I've heard accusations of people being crazy just because they kept a loaded gun in their house. And these come out in these kinds of hearings, and I'm not talking about leaving loaded guns around when you have children or if you have company. I'm talking about a grown adult living alone, sitting in his living room, alone, with a gun on the coffee table. They said, that guy must be crazy. He's dangerous. There are people out there who will think that you're crazy or that you're mentally ill if you exercise your freedom of religion in the privacy of your own home, if it's in a way that they disapprove. You know, we often hear in church about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, there are Hollywood elites out there who think that's just plain crazy. Joy Behar on The View said that you're allowed to talk to God, but if God talks back, well, that means you're crazy. So if you are sitting there and you think that this is not a big deal, when the government oversteps its bounds with who it decides should be subjected to involuntary mental health treatment, then you better listen up. Because if we don't fight back when this happens, if we don't stand up and get into court for these all-out battles, well then, guess what? You're going to be next. And I'm going to be next. 
and your family members might be next. And certainly, the cast of We the People will be next. I guess we'll be calling you on a phone at some point in time saying, Mike, <laughs> I need your services. Help. <laughs> tell, tell me about these, these doctors who sign off on saying, yeah, that guy's crazy. You know, go ahead and lock him up. I mean, uh, is this just a general medical doctor, general practitioner? That's, or you know? That's absolutely right. It's an emergency room doctor who sits there with a brief version of the facts. And I've seen many of these documents, these applications for involuntary mental health treatment that will say patient denies the allegations, yet they sign off on keeping the person there. So you have a scorned ex-wife. I had a guy who his wife had been having an extramarital affair. And she had been denying it and denying it and denying it. And finally, she decided to have him subjected to involuntary mental health treatment. And they brought the guy in. She had made all these wild claims. And so they keep him there. They 302 him. Ultimately, they go on to speak with his other family members, like his children, like his mother-in-law. They say, well, that's not true. And later it comes out that guess what? He wasn't crazy. She actually was having an extramarital affair. And this guy has this mark on him for the rest of his life. People don't understand that once that doctor signs that piece of paper, you've become prohibited from possessing firearms throughout the United States for the rest of your life, unless and until you get that court order. So people want to talk about we don't have enough measures to stop people and things of that nature. Not only do we have more than enough measures, but these measures are being abused right now. And so, like, in that situation, I mean, was he arrested and, and brought to the hospital? Or how was that how was that achieved, that he was brought to the hospital? So the police can actually show up, and if they witness the behavior, they can do it without a warrant. If they don't witness the behavior, then they have to actually get a warrant from the, the county administrator. But the county administrator is not doing an independent investigation. And the courts have even said that when you're looking at the face of these applications to decide whether there was sufficiency of the evidence... The truth or falsity of the accusations does not come into play. So basically, the standard that is used by the courts is you have to presume that everything that was said was true, no matter how wild or outrageous it is. And that's even, that's just the tip of the iceberg, Pastor Whitney, because you have people who could be mentally disabled for a number of reasons that don't have to do with mental illness. I had a guy who was in a coma and this happened to him. I've had people, children. Children six and seven years of age who their parents are mad at them or parents are drug addicts and feel like getting a vacation and have them 302'd. It is absolutely outrageous how broad this is. It, the system itself has been challenged constitutionally. It went up to the Third Circuit. And unfortunately, that challenge was struck down. It wasn't my case, but it was struck down. Uh, any, any hope that it would go to the Supreme Court? That that case is finished. It's going to have to be another case, and it's going to have to. It's going to require an incredible amount of funding. That's the downside. A lot of people who come in and they have uh, standing to bring these challenges, they don't usually have a hundred thousand dollars to put down on a challenge to the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, uh, Mike, uh, who is a county administrator? What are the county administrator's credentials? You know, is he a judge? Um, what? What have you? No, they're they're a county official, and they're put in that position uh, through the county behavioral health department. They have different names for different counties. Uh, they no longer use the term mental retardation, typically. Uh, so they'll have different names for what exactly they call. But each county will have their own department of behavioral health and intellectual disabilities. So the county administrator then is not a medical person. 
It's an administrative position. That's what I, I thought I heard. <laughs> and how is it that an administrator makes a judgment, which is, in effect, well, they're very, just very making the judgment. They're, what they're doing is is the warrant aspect of it. So it's not like they're making the evaluation. Once they get to what's supposed to be an approved facility, that's an issue that comes up often is whether or not the facility they were brought to and transported to is even a, an approved facility under the Mental Health Procedures Act. But once they're brought to that approved facility, they'll visit with uh, the emergency room doctor typically. And here's what I find completely ironic about this is we've had these restoration cases where we've had an expert witness independently evaluate our client and prepare a report and testify in court. And I've had the other side have the audacity to ask questions about how much time they spent with our client, you know, whether it be, you know, an hour or two hours or four hours, they'll say, is that really enough time to make a determination? And I said in court one time, I said, your honor, they're standing on an application where their doctor evaluated my guy for five minutes. Where do they get off coming out here and trying to say that my mental health professional didn't see him for enough time? <laughs> So this person is not even a, a judge, not trained in the law. There's certainly not a judge. Absolutely not a judge. It's an emergency room physician, a physician typically. Wow. It just looks like our liberty hangs by something as more, more slender than that of, you know, a spider web or something. It's like any one of us could, for any reason at all, be thrown into a, a mental institution like my, my friend at church was with no, no evidence at all that they really have a mental problem. That, that's how distorted and, and messed up this system is. And Pastor Whitney, you've been exposed to it secondhand, so you understand that it is real. I think the challenge is, and the reason why we don't see anything moving forward as far as improvement on this, except little by little, is that most people don't understand the reality of this. People are, are, are surprised and almost like they don't even believe that this is taking place. It's something that I see every single day. These are good people. These are good people with, with good careers. They're hardworking people. And they end up in these situations. It could happen to any single one of us. And people don't understand that. And that's why they don't care. And that was the, the shock to me when my friend was incarcerated. It was like, when he was on the phone, I said, what? This is crazy. What's happening? And so I went to visit him and it was it was a higher security than where he was uh, uh, two weeks later. But it was it was essentially a prison. And I went through all these gates and so forth. It's like, yikes, I'm uh, I'm going into the, the cell block here to to just, you know, have some time with him and, and pray with him and read scripture with him and and ask him what specifically could I do? And I was shocked at how many days it took me days it took me to get his car keys so I could rescue his car from being. Uh, towed and impounded and you know just the the ease with which this happened and the fact that he had very little recourse and it took months to get recourse to be able to even you know get back before the judge who put him in and and argue no no no, there's no evidence of mental illness going on here at all this is just a, a family spat and the father has uh decided he wants his son incarcerated and that's what happens it's like this is America, <laughs> the land of the free. Wow. <laughs> what a shock that was to be. What I would say is that if you're involved in this situation ever, one of the best things you could do is to agree to go in voluntarily because that allows you the opportunity to get a little more time to get counsel, things of that nature. Because the minute 
goes as involuntary. Your life has just changed forever. And you are correct. That lockdown unit is really no joke. Mike, let me make a comment about this rationalization that people go through that uh, these kinds of things don't involve me and, and so forth and so on. They're, uh, they involve other people who probably deserve it. Um, Lavrenti Berea, who was uh, the internal security guy for Stalin, made a comment one time, and this was true in the Soviet Union. He said, show me the man and I'll find the crime. But that's the way the system can work. It can always work against you because they can always find a crime. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And the strange thing is that for a completely sane person, if they're being accused of all these wild things and being accused of being mentally ill and they're saying, we've got to take you in, you're going to come stay in the hospital for a little while. It's almost as if the natural true reaction would be to to say, I'm not crazy. What are you talking about? And then what does that that do? Everybody around <laughs> yeah, that, you says, see, he's yeah. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> the prove the point. And to me, this this illustrates the problem that we're, we're facing is that the legal system has been, I don't know whether you'd say hijacked because it's not every area of law, but it has been certainly infiltrated by these social sciences that are really, they have no, no absolute standards. Like Phil, you've illustrated and, and, you know, the definitions of what's mental illness. Well, we've got this or that or the other. But um, yeah, certainly there are people who are a danger to themselves and to others and are trying to commit suicide and things like that. So there are measures that can be made, but there's a whole category of people that, uh, you know, just because they're a little different, than someone else, then they suddenly become categorized as mentally ill and are, are incarcerated for this. Is, this is extremely dangerous. In other words, the system, I think, has been uh, in part hijacked such that our liberties are not secure. And that's sort of what the whole purpose of our legal system is supposed to be, that our God-given rights, life, and the very second one mentioned in the Declaration of Independence is liberty, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness uh, are under attack from the very system that is supposed to be protecting those rather than attacking those. Well, there's a corollary to this, I think, in, in the area of uh, so-called internal terrorism. Um, we've, we've all heard, I think this was out in Missouri, uh, where the state police were looking for people who had bumper stickers uh, indicating they were constitutionalists. And they were, in their minds, clearly uh, radicals and dangerous to society as terrorists. So, you know, if it can be done there, it certainly can be done in the area of, of mental illness. No, and that was the, the FBI that uh, in Missouri was issuing their report. These are the people to look out for if they got a Ron Paul bumper sticker and therefore they support a constitutional candidate. They're very dangerous. They're domestic terrorists. Yeah. Uh, so we have that uh, attack coming at many different angles. But uh, it, it begs the question, what are the things, Mike, that we can do in the midst of this insanity? I mean, I'm, I'm saying that the government has gone insane, not that the people <laughs> are insane. We need to incarcerate most people that are in government because they're insane. Yeah, step one is that if you know somebody who's uh, been affected by this, to tell them that there is something they can do about it. Um, if you visit thegunlawfirm.com, we deal with these cases all the time. And, you know, we try to help as many people as we possibly can in these situations. So that's number one. And number two is there's really got to be a push 
from some of these Second Amendment organizations to do something about this because they're going to be the ones who have the funding to take these challenges. It's very, very rare that you've got an individual who's going to be able to do something like this because, like I said, it's just it's just going to be so costly to take on this kind of a fight. Um, but if we can get more people who actually care about it and are willing to uh, you know, voice their concerns to Second Amendment organizations, then perhaps we'll be able to take one of these challenges up to the Supreme Court and we'll be able to straighten it out because this is a, very, very much a problem. And it's just not Pennsylvania, obviously. Though. It's certainly just not Pennsylvania. And every, every system is a little bit different. And frankly, I was surprised to hear that a lot of the more left-leaning states, you're actually better off when it comes to mental health treatment because uh, the people on the left seem to have uh, a stronger value attributed to not having people who are mentally ill confined. So we've found that they've got some better protections in some of these left-leaning states, believe it or not. So I don't know, perhaps it could be a bipartisan issue. Perhaps we can change some of the legislation if we get this on the, the, the desk of some of the politicians. Perhaps contact your local officials and say that it means something to you. I've spoken to some politicians about it in the past when they've contacted me and asked me you know, what's of concern in the Second Amendment community and told them what kind of a rash of incidents we've had with these sorts of things. Uh, but unfortunately, it's really never gotten any traction and I think some of the hesitancy has to do with the the public in terms of firearms rights being a hot button issue. Uh, the public, they, I think they're concerned that the public will just see it as, oh, you want to give crazy people guns, which really, obviously, that's not what it's all about. Hmm. And so, for example, some of the gatekeepers in this process would be the doctor in the emergency room. I mean... That that's, that would be an easy standard to change, I would think, legislatively. Say, hey, it just can't be the average emergency room doctor that's signing off and say, okay, yeah, we're going to commit this person. It needs to be somebody with much more training and much more expertise in the area of mental health. I mean, would that be one change that could be made legislatively, you think? Uh, yeah, sure, I would take that because sometimes what we've had happen is that the emergency room doctor signs off on it. And then when they get the psychiatrist in the following day, even, they'll look at the person and say, no, this person doesn't need to be there and cut them loose. Well, guess what? Because that doctor signed the paper the night before, now that person's scarred for the rest of their life unless we get court relief. So even though just hours later, somebody took a look who's more qualified and said that this was unnecessary, uh, that person's still stuck with that. So sure, that would be an improvement. You know, I'd like that combined with a, a hearing with due process where we could put on witnesses and cross-examine witnesses and everything like that. I'd like a higher standard. Uh, there's there's a, a bunch of things I'd like, but sure, that would be a step in the right direction. Right. So the rush to get a person, you know, committed, uh, that speed with which that's done is part of the problem as well. I think so, uh, because you can't keep a person forever on nothing. I get that aspect of it, right? Sort of like when they're holding somebody when they haven't been charged. You don't want that. Um, but at the same time, I think most people prefer that they get it right rather than get it wrong in the interest of, of doing it so quickly. So perhaps that's one way that uh, things could be improved. It's not something that's going to involve a quick fix, though. I think there are a lot of different things that need to change. Even something, uh, of course, nobody wants to be there for 72 hours, but even if they were to uh, change things around to a degree that... Uh, something like that doesn't permanently impact somebody, I think that would even be an improvement. 
Yeah, rather than a permanent stain on your record for the rest of your life. A, if I could make a comment about this, um, uh, the the emergency room physician, if you if you position that individual um, along a a spectrum, let us say, of um, physicians who are best able to handle a situation like this, and then those who are least able to handle a situation like this. In the least able to handle the, the situation would be an emergency room physician, and the reason is, if you go into if you go into an emergency room, and it doesn't have to be Cook County Hospital, uh, you know, or Bellevue or anything like that, you know, or, or a Philadelphia General in the the past. Uh, if you go into these places, these are absolutely crazy, crazy situations. I mean, just in I was in Chester County Hospital. Uh, just, I think in October, I was 75th, I believe, in line for emergency care. Now, can you imagine a stream of patients coming at you with all kinds of things, including gunshot wounds and so forth and so on? An emergency room is absolute mayhem. And any physician has to be, who does his or her work adequately in that environment, must be able to make very quick decisions based upon a, you know, often a very limited amount of information. It is absolutely the worst possible selection for an administrator. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And, you know, there are professionals out there who really understand this stuff. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with an expert witness named Gianni Pirelli out of New Jersey. He wrote a book called The Behavioral Science of Firearms and also another book that just came out through Oxford Press called Firearms and Clinical Practice. And I mean, these folks who do this all the time, they're the ones who really understand the ins and outs of this stuff. But the doctor who's dealing with the kid who just broke his leg playing football, <laughs> they're not going to have that kind of expertise, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, this is this is such an important issue, and and Michael, I thank you for your expertise on this, and I thank you for defending in the courtroom people who are wrongly accused and and who have had their God given rights stripped away as a result of this uh, really egregious process of uh, violating uh, their their constitutional rights. Well, this is, this is we the people. The Constitution matters. Coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL, and in, in, in joining you to tell folks about our program. Join us on Friday mornings at 8 a.m. here on WFYL. We the people, the Constitution matters.